conductive wire And you were so electric I had no say when you came so near And just passed right through me Hey everyone, welcome to Geekdom is Back. I'm your host, Deanna Chapman, and today I am joined once again by Alex DiVincenzo from Broke Horror Fan. We are talking all about Scream today. This is, I think, the last of the big franchises that I had yet to start, Alex. Yeah, I think based on our, our previous conversation, this was this was definitely the biggest uh, omission so far. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I have seen the first Saw movie, but don't ask me to remember what happened in it. I know (laughs) I own it on DVD, though, so that's something at least. (laughs) That's a start. Yeah, so I actually had picked up the Scream 1 through 3 little box set, and then it has a fourth disc with a documentary and some other extra stuff that I haven't had a chance to dive into just yet. I think I want to watch all three first and then dive into that, but I know when I was done watching it or while I was watching it, I sent you a text and I was like, you know, it's kind of annoying that on the Blu-ray release, they show you a trailer of Scream 4 before they even get you to the menu for the first movie. That is annoying. Uh, Like, I get it. I think that that set came out uh, the time that Scream 4 came out, obviously, to promote the movie. And it's, it's a good little set. I'd love to see at least the first scream, if not all of them, get like a bigger, you know, more of a special edition treatment, maybe mm-hmm. a new scan. Uh, but like you can find that set for like 20 bucks with the three movies and it's got two documentaries, like you said, and some other extras. It's worth it. But yeah, it, weird that they to have a non-skippable trailer for the latest that kind of, I guess doesn't really give anything away per se, but you knew, you knew who was going to survive yeah. the first one based on who you saw in the trailer. And I mean, I kind of knew that as well going into this because of the Scream 5 news recently that, you know, when you're on social media, you can't really avoid. And so I wasn't really upset. I just thought it was a very weird thing to do. Yeah, like, I mean, presumably anybody who bought that set, they know that a new Scream movie is coming out. Yeah, that that's fair. I just think, you know, maybe if someone's buying the Blu-ray they haven't seen the first movie. (laughs) (laughs) That's also true. That's also true. But it's fine. You know, I kind of knew what to expect going into it because with all of these franchises, it's like I'm not unfamiliar with any of the villains or even some of the main characters. It's just I haven't sat down to watch through all of these franchise movies. You know, I'm a few in on Halloween. I've seen the first Friday the 13th, the first Nightmare on Elm Street. I even watched the first Leprechaun, which I wouldn't put in the same tier (laughs) as these, but I'm kind of slowly making my way through them. I watched Texas Chainsaw Massacre in October. I want to say we're recording this at the tail end of December, but by the time you're all hearing it, it's 2021, and I may or may not have watched some more movies from each of these franchises, but Scream is one that actually doesn't have nearly as many movies as the rest, it seems. Yeah, as, as you mentioned, the fifth one is in the works, which they're just going to call Scream, uh, which is a little annoying, but whatever. I get it. They don't they don't want subtitles or, or numbers to throw off audiences. But then when you're referring to a movie, you always have to do like parentheticals with the year that it came out to specify which Scream you're talking about or right. which Halloween or which whatever. But yeah, it's... It's, I mean, it's certainly newer than most of those other movies, all of those other movies. True. But even still, it. I, I think it was just a different era. Uh, the 80s was was a wild time for, for horror movies in particular and slasher franchises. 
Um, and Scream is definitely a response to all of that, but it has that that Hollywood polish to it because it was, I mean, not a huge budget, but it it was probably bigger than any of those other classics you talk about. And then it made a a wild amount of money, and they quickly greenlit the first sequel. And yeah, it was always planned. Well, so they say. <laughs> or at least by the time they got to the second one, they were planning to do three and then Call of Trilogy. Um, and then, of course, as time went on, uh, you know, a few years later, they started talking about a fourth one. Then Wes Craven died, and everyone kind of thought that would be the end of it until some inevitable remake came along. But yes, the new Scream is... is they're kind of calling it a reboot because of the title, but it's it's a direct sequel. It's got the same characters coming back, so I'm I'm excited to see what they do with it. Yeah, what I found very interesting about this first one is that, you know, Wes Craven had already found a ton of success with a big franchise, and this one allowed him to do something a little different. It is obviously a slasher movie in every sense of it, but this one has a lot more fun with the genre. Yeah, uh, Wes Craven was in a pretty interesting spot, I think, because he, I mean, the guy's amazing. He has several misses in his filmography, but like the hits, like when he hits, he hits hard. I mean, he did, obviously did the first time on Elm Street that revolutionized, I shouldn't say revolutionized, but definitely one of the best slashers. Um, And then before that, he had Hills Have Eyes and Last House on the Left, which are like, influential you know kind of grindhousey exploitationy horror movies uh, and then he came came back hard with scream after a few a few less than successful movies um right before scream he did vampire in brooklyn which i think was like a, a bigger budget for him but critical failure uh box office failure and prior to that was west craven's new nightmare which is the seventh uh nightmare on elm street movie which again, didn't do what they wanted it to do at the box office, considering it was, you know, the big send-off for Freddy. I will say, I know you haven't made it that far in the Elm Street franchise, but Mm -hmm. uh, I like New Nightmare a lot, and it's definitely feels like a precursor to Scream in the the meta elements of it, the self-awareness. Yeah. Um, I feel like that had at least something to do with him landing the gig beyond just him being a guy who knows slashers. If I recall correctly, this the studio went after a few different like big horror directors. I think maybe John Carpenter met for it, uh, but they wanted somebody who knew the horror genre to to tackle Scream because it is so self aware. But I mean, I think I love John Carpenter. He's probably my favorite filmmaker. But yeah, I can't imagine anyone handling the material in Scream better than Wes Craven. That it was just just a perfect match. Um, and Kevin Williamson deserves a lot of credit for writing that script too. Yeah, I really feel like the cast is what made this just kind of a really, really good first film in a franchise because Drew Barrymore obviously had been in so many things before this since she was a child actor. And the fact that you get her and she ultimately isn't even one of the people we see beyond the first third of the movie, that is just... A bold choice because I think by this point in time, Drew Barrymore is someone that a lot of people, especially in the horror community and kind of like the science fiction world, really grew to love. Yeah. I don't know how familiar you are with the backstory. I know you just watched the movie and, and haven't delved into the extras yet, but I believe Drew Barrymore, they wanted her for Sydney Nev Campbell's role. Um, and for whatever reason, she was attracted to that Casey, that opening scene. And I mean, the movie was, it was, you know, pre you know internet at least in the way we know it right. today 
people just assume Drew Barrymore was on the movie in the movie. Her name's on the poster. She has her own like they did character posters. Like one of them's her face. People just assume she was a main character. So when she dies, like whatever it is, 15 minutes in after that opening sequence, it was like a big shock. It was like their tribute to uh, Psycho when, I mean, spoiler alert if you haven't seen Psycho, but it's a similar similar kind of uh, sleight of hand trick where you think you're following this lead character of the movie and then halfway through she's gone. Uh, and I just thought that was such a good idea on top of, I mean, that opening sequence is... I would say probably the best opening sequence in all of horror. I love all of Scream. It, it's it's one of my favorite horror movies. But I think that opening sequence is is just un, untouchable. The the tone, the the references, the performances. I love it. Yeah, and the fact that the real main character, Sydney, who is played by Nev Campbell, it takes you by surprise because it takes so long to get to her character and her story. And this movie isn't too terribly long. I think it's fairly long for the 90s. It was like an hour and 50 minutes. And that's kind of long for a horror movie sometimes too. But I think by this point, Wes Craven had built a name for himself very much so, you know, and a lot of this cast had as well. You know, you also have Courtney Cox in this and she is doing this after Friends has already started. Yeah, I believe... Uh, she did Friends. She by the time they filmed Scream, she had just finished season one of Friends. So I don't think it was quite the the hit bonanza that it became. Okay, but certainly people knew who she was because I mean she had a little bit of a career before Friends, and then obviously Friends she started to blow up. Yeah, and looking back now, it's like I recognize a lot of these people from other things that they have done. You know, Skeet Ulrich is one of the dads in Riverdale, and it's yes. funny because a lot of these people almost look exactly the same. So obviously they have aged, but when I went and watched Scream, I was like, oh, all of these people are instantly recognizable to me now because of these other things. I've seen them in way more recently. And, you know, he had had a little bit of a career before Scream. I believe he was in The Craft, which came out the same year, but technically before Scream, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, that's correct. Actually, Nev Campbell is in The Craft as well. Okay. So it's it's a fun little connection, but obviously that one didn't quite connect the way that Scream did. Yeah, and Rose McGowan went on to be in Charmed, I want to say, five or six years after this and had a big role in that. You know, not everyone necessarily was big when Scream happened, but it really feels like there was so much potential with this cast that Scream was kind of a starting point for some of them. And then it just kind of launched them after that, especially with it being tied to Wes Craven. And, you know, horror movies don't necessarily seem to be what people think of when they say, oh, this movie launched this person's career. But I think you can say that about things like this and even Halloween for Jamie Lee Curtis. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Kevin Bacon in Friday the 13th. Yeah. Uh, there's a, a few few notable examples um, I think Kevin Bacon maybe had a smaller role in, in something else before that, but that was like his first major speaking role. You, you're right. I don't think Scream would be the movie that we regarded as today if it weren't for the cast. It was it was like, you know, a hip young cast at the time. And it's it's age in such a way, I should say the cast has has their careers have gone in such a way that everyone is just as recognizable, if not more more recognizable now. Yeah. Even people who. Maybe their careers didn't get quite as big after, but, you know, names like Jamie Kennedy, 
David Arquette, Matthew Lillard, like just really solid, understated in in some cases, um, actors who mm-hmm. are doing some of their best work in this movie that that no one really knew was going to be was going to take on this life of its own. Yeah, and even the small appearance from Liev Schreiber, and you're just kind of like, oh, he was literally in this for like I don't know ten seconds, if that. <laughs> Yeah, and Henry Winkler, the Fonz, as the principal, is like another fun little little role. Linda Blair as the reporter, too. And, you know, yes. Linda Blair and Henry Winkler didn't even get credited, I don't think. And then you have Wes Craven's cameo as Fred the Janitor, which I thought was very fun. And obviously, he's not an actor, so it's not quite the same as having Henry Winkler and Linda Blair appear. But it really just felt like not only was this a serious slasher film, but it was a commentary on the horror genre because you have Sydney on the phone with, you know, the voice, let's call it. And she's like, they always run upstairs. And then, I don't know, two minutes later, she's running upstairs. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. I, I wouldn't necessarily call Scream a horror comedy, but there's definitely a lot of levity to it. I mean, by the time you get to the third act, it's it's all played pretty straight. It's like, you know, your big final chase and all that. But everything leading up to that, um, there's a good sense of humor, sometimes dark, sometimes um, satirical of, of the genre. Right. Uh, but there's a really good sense of humor there that's smart. And so many movies that came after Scream tried to imitate that, both both the self-awareness and and, you know, kind of mixing these you know, big names, stars on TV, put them in a horror movie, let's make it like Scream and see how it does and make it all meta. But none of them came anywhere close uh, to doing it as well uh, or as succinctly as Scream. Yeah, and I think Scary Movie is obviously the big sort of parody franchise. Yeah, absolutely. But I really felt like all of the cast members just gave the roles their all because Matthew Lillard is exactly how you would expect Matthew Lillard to be in a horror movie. And (laughs) I'm saying that after years and years of seeing him in other stuff, you know, SLC Punk, the Scooby-Doo's, just voicing Shaggy in all of the Scooby-Doo stuff that he's voiced Shaggy in. And as soon as I saw him, I was a little worried, I will admit, because he's definitely on the more comedic side of things. You know, he's not really someone who is in super serious roles all the time, but because this is a slasher with teenagers, as many slashers have teenagers in them, you don't always need the teenagers to be 100% serious. So it worked really well. Yeah, I think I think some of them being goofy, um, Matthew Lillard plays Stu as, as kind of a big goof. And I also love Jamie Kennedy as Randy, who's probably one of my favorite slasher characters because he's the guy, he's the horror nerd. He works at a video store. He knows all the cliches. He's teaching everyone else about them. He's really the core of the the meta angle of the film. Um, And I think he just does it so well. I mean, it's a well-written character. Again, unfortunately, to this day, you still see a lot of independent horror movies who are made like by horror fans. And there's always, always a character who's like, um, who's like Randy, who tries to like tell the audience that the characters are stupid. And it, it just doesn't work as well. You know, it's been done, uh, but never, never as well as Jamie Kennedy did it. Yeah, it's kind of like you can't beat Wes Craven at his own game that he basically created. Exactly, exactly. And and it, even getting, I mean, we touched on this before, but even getting Wes Craven to direct is like almost a meta commentary in itself. 
it's it's just yeah, top to bottom, um, cast and crew, just brilliant all around. Yeah, and I think that's what brought the whole thing together because for the most part, I want to say a lot of stories in horror are fairly simple, and I don't mean that in a bad way, but this is literally there's a serial killer killing teenagers. It's not something that is super complex. We do get some motivations by the end of it for why this happened, and you actually find out the twist that it was two of them instead of just one and how they did it. You know, they really do a nice job of telling you and showing you at the same time instead of just having it be strictly exposition. Yeah, no, I agree. And I, I think that's another thing that sets Scream apart, uh, particularly of of the 90s slashers. Although even with the 80s, there some of them were mysteries, but the mystery was usually, it was just revealed like in the last frame. It was just like, oh, it's that guy. He was mad for, it was like usually like money or like over a relationship or, you know, some stupid motivation. But this one, I feel like more than any other slasher that, that presents it as a mystery angle had played out like a mystery movie. You know, you could watch this as not a horror fan. Obviously, you know, you're going to see people getting killed, but you could watch it as a murder mystery and like, you know, try to find the clues to see who the killer is. Now, granted, as you said, it's basically impossible to guess because there's two of them. So you might see the killer with one character and be like, oh, well, now it can't be that character. But mm-hmm. then it secretly could be. Um, but I, I really think it's 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 a smart... It doesn't get credit for being the smart mystery that, he, that it is. Um, and they try to keep that up in the sequels, as you will come to see, uh, with mixed results. Um, never as successful as the first one, I don't think. But they do keep the mystery angle, which is fun and unique for a franchise because there is a different killer or killer's in each movie because they usually don't survive. They get killed at the end. But somebody else can pick up that mask and have the motivation, whatever it may be. Right. And while the story itself is simple, the characters have more complexities to them. And I think that's what makes this work because you have Dewey, played by David Arquette, who is the older brother of Tatum, played by Rose McGowan. And he's this young cop and he's trying to gain people's respect because this is a small town in the sense that everyone kind of knows everyone. Obviously, it's meant to be a town in California. And yes, small towns do exist there. You know, it's not all Los Angeles and San Francisco and San Diego kind of cities. But I really felt like his character was trying to earn respect from the high school students, especially the ones who knew him personally. You have Sydney, who is dealing with the upcoming anniversary of the death of her mother. And the entire time her dad is supposed to be away on a business trip, I think is what he said at the beginning. Yeah, I believe that's right. So he knows that this day is coming up, this anniversary, and He just leaves his daughter on her own. And you really get a feeling that she is the most complex character that we spend a lot of time with because of this thing that happened in her past that we don't necessarily need to see. But things unfold and she starts to have second thoughts about the guy who was put away for it because of her testimony. And It's so subtle, though, because they don't focus on it too much. It just comes into play in little pieces. And then that kind of gives you the buildup so that the reveal at the end is that much more shocking. 
Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think the character of Sidney Prescott is really interesting. It's definitely, you know, taking the 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 final girl mold that, you know, Jamie Lee Curtis was in Halloween and Heather Langenkamp in Nightmare on Elm Street and kind of giving it a little more, making it a little more well-rounded and, and lived in. She feels like a real person instead of just this, you know, this chaste final girl model. It's interesting because they talk about, you know, one of the rules to survive a horror movie that, that Randy talks about is you don't have sex, but you do see her have sex. And I mean, spoiler alert, I guess, but she's in the fifth movie, so you can probably assume she lives. Yeah. So I thought so- something that is clever, the way they, they address these cliches and then subvert them. You know, you think they're going to go that way and then they, they, you know, they zig when you think they're going to zag. You have the fact, too, that... They all seem pretty well off when you go and you see these houses they live in. They're these big, giant houses. It's not really just sort of a, you know, suburban three or four bedroom house. I mean, some of them might have only been four bedrooms or whatever, but they are massive houses. And they use that to their advantage in this, especially when we're at Casey's house in the beginning. And of course, you know, the house has to have so many glass windows. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but I mean again, just uh you they use it in such a way that it doesn't feel obvious until I mean obviously you see it and you think about it and you're like, "Oh yeah, they are all they all must be like rich spoiled kids." But the I feel like within the context of the film, they don't necessarily come off that way. No, not at all. You kind of feel like this is just how this small town is. It's like people of a certain status live here and you don't really see any discrepancies between the wealth level of any of the kids. Right, yeah. It's like the only scandal the town has had was um was Sydney's mother. Right. And that was like a big deal because this is such a, you know, fine little community. Yeah, and the fact too that Casey's house is on a good amount of land. Same with Stu's house. You know, you have these big houses, but they're also surrounded by a ton of land. They're not sandwiched in together. Like if you were to go to, I don't know, let's say Beverly Hills or something, you know, the houses are going to be a little closer together just because there's so many people living in that area. And I thought that was clever because then it's more realistic that no one is going to hear you scream for help. Yes, absolutely. And it gives you sort of this desolate setting almost. Yeah, like you said, it's unique because it's not it's not the suburbia. It's not far off, but it's just, again, a slight subversion of the suburbia we see in so many other slashers. Yeah, it's not Pasadena. <laughs> <laughs> right. Which for anyone who might be confused by that statement is Haddonfield. <laughs> <laughs> But I was really surprised with how much I pleasantly enjoyed this film. You know, it wasn't something that necessarily tried to get you with jump scares all the time. Obviously, there is that element in so many of these slasher films, but it wasn't something they were trying to do constantly. They used it sparingly enough to where even something like when Sydney's dad at the end comes tumbling out of the closet, it startles all of them because they kind of forgot about him for a moment. And I just really like the touches like that where it's like there's this sort of jump scare, but it's not because of the killer. Uh, That reminds me of a similar thing that I love about the Scream movies and is somewhat unique, which is the killer, because it's just, you know, it's not 
it's not your pure evil Michael Myers or your undead Jason Voorhees or uh-huh. your, you know, your dream demon Freddy. It's just a, a kid in high school who has a knife. He's like a clumsy killer. Like, you know, he gets knocked down, he gets hit around, mm-hmm. he falls. It, it feels real in that way, in a way that you don't see in many, many slasher movies or horror movies in general. Right. The killer in this does not feel unkillable. I know that's not really a word, but I think... This is the serial killer where you felt like someone could take him out, or in this case, them out. Right, yeah. I mean, it's still scary, obviously, because it's a killer on the loose, and they play up the mystery, because you don't know who it is. It could be literally anyone. could be, you know, the person you think is your boyfriend, or, you know, your best friend, somebody from school. But when it comes down to it, they're just another human being. Right. Let's dive into the twist of it being two of them, though, because we haven't talked about who the two were. And I think they did a very nice job of making you think it was these other people at first. And obviously, when they first take Billy in, you're kind of like, okay, you know, this is a little too soon for them to wrap this up. But I love the fact that they circle back and it does end up being him. Yeah, no, I thought that was a really smart misdirection because... By that point, you know, once he's caught and then released because there was a, you know, the killer made a phone call to someone else while he was in prison. So he's released. So you're like, okay, well, he's in the clear. And then, you know, he and Sydney make up later. That's when they have their their sex scene. And then he's killed. So then it's like, okay, well, it definitely wasn't Billy. And then, you know, you find out that wasn't true either. Yeah. It's just really smart the way it toys with the audience. The only thing that I was trying to wrap my head around was where the corn syrup came from, because like you said, that was their sex scene moment. And then his shirt is not on. So it's not like, you know, he just had, you know, like blood packets in his shirt, (laughs) because I feel like that would have been noticed if he had taken his shirt off and then put it back on (laughs) at some point. But I guess the thinking is, oh, it's just, you know, coming from the fake knife that Stu uses because we find out that Stu is the second killer. You know, I never really thought about that. But yeah, I guess that would be my assumption that there's, you know, a tube on the fake knife that releases the blood or something. And I, in the the excitement of the moment, you know, I think it's believable that Sydney might not notice that if she's, right. I mean, you know, she's running in fear. Yeah, and... She was having that conversation with Billy just moments before that happens where she's saying how it could have been him, basically, (laughs) still. And then, you know, she sees Ghostface come up behind him. And I thought that was really cleverly done. But I feel like I kind of overthink these things a little now, like with the whole blood and the knife thing, because... We know how a lot of these effects are done, having watched so many bonus features, documentaries, what have you, that you and I typically expect there to be some sort of blood bag underneath the shirt, and then, you know, the knife pokes a hole in it or whatever, and that's how you get your blood. Yeah. So I was kind of like, but he took his shirt off, so, you know, <laughs> maybe I'm overthinking it a little too much, but I still love this. That that was kind of the only thing I noticed, and... To talk about some of the other kills first, the effects in this were really good because you have 
Casey's boyfriend, whose name I am totally blanking on at the beginning, but his guts are spilling out. And, you know, we don't get a close up on that, which I think is fine because in the setting and in the lighting that they had, that worked really well. And then Tatum getting crushed by the garage door, I think was one of the great effects. You can tell it's an effect. Obviously, they're not actually going to squish Rose McGowan in a garage door, but the fact that they just left it there and then Sydney stumbles upon it. I was like, yeah, that was really good. <laughs> um, yeah, quick aside, Casey's boyfriend is Steve. Okay. And I I believe, I'm pretty sure it's only available on like Laserdisc and VHS right now for some reason. Uh, but there was an unrated cut where I think they show like a close up of his guts spilling out onto the ground or something like that when he gets cut up. Okay. And and it was cut by the MPAA. I mean, it was assisted. They had to cut it to get their R rating. And again, I, I would love to see some kind of special edition release of this where you get to see that director's cut just because, you know, Wes Craven shot it. So I'd like to see it. But as you said, I don't think you need it based on how the scene plays out. It's one mm-hmm. of those things that's almost scary if you don't see it. But yes, I think the the best kill of the movie, best kill of the franchise, you know, one of the most memorable slasher kills ever is that doggy door. Now, I don't know that a garage could support the weight of a human being, even though Rose McGowan is a tiny person. Right. Or if it did, if it could pull, pull her up, I'm sure it wouldn't really crush her like that. I don't know. But just in the heat of the moment, the way the scene's set up is so good. And then the payoff, again, like you said, you, you can tell it's a body that they cut to now that you're watching it in HD. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I feel like, you know, on, on VHS or TV or whatever, that probably played really well. Uh, K&B effects group did the special effects. I mean, they did like every movie ever. Uh, but this is one of... So, uh, some of their best work. It's not necessarily their goriest. Some of it's actually on the subtle side for them. It's not like an over the over the top Friday Thirteenth. You know, he, he the killer's not using every single thing he finds as a weapon. Although he does use a doggy door, but it's predominantly just this hunting knife. Yeah, and I think it's effective. And also, uh, somewhat related, the the ghost face ghost face mask is such a cool visage of. Of a killer, it reminds me. It kind of harks, harkens back to the Halloween mask because it's just blank, expressionless, black and white. You know, the kind of thing you can just project anybody's face onto, which works so well for the mystery angle. And that was like, you know, a real Halloween mask that existed before the movie. You could have went and bought it at your local CVS or whatever, and you know, they they bought the license to it to use for the movie, and now it's become this this huge icon. They, I mean, the same company still makes those masks every Halloween. It's it's crazy how how huge it's become that they used, you know, an existing thing. They didn't create an original mask like they did for Halloween or Friday the 13th or anything like that. Well, as we all know, Halloween was William Shatner, but they made it a new mask. One of the things that's really funny about the fact that I had not seen this was me going around dressed as Ghostface for Halloween for numerous years as like a middle school, high school kid. Well, I was thinking it was so like ubiquitous, especially when the movie came out, like you could get it, you know, every, I feel like like the dollar store carries these masks at this point or like, you know, a ripoff of them anyway. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's funny, funny how that works out that sometimes you go, it, the, the icon becomes bigger than the movie. Oh, absolutely. And because of things like Scary Movie, you can realistically know who these characters are without having seen the original films. And I can't imagine I would have watched Scream when I was in middle school. 
it could have happened if it was like a TV cut or something, but I don't think that was the case because as I was watching this, I was like, I definitely feel like this is the first time I had watched it all the way through. Maybe I had seen clips here and there, but I didn't really get into movies until much, much later because it just wasn't a thing we did as a family super often. It was, you know, every once in a while we would go to the movie theaters, but it wasn't until I had my own money, had Movie Pass, and then the AMC A list that I started going more and more. And obviously, that is well after all of these movies have come out. <laughs> so we either watch stuff on DVD at home, but then it was mostly just whatever my parents bought. I wasn't the one going and buying movies. So we didn't have a huge horror collection. And I would admit that I still don't think I do now. I do have a, a lot of the Stephen King stuff because of my Stephen King podcast, but it's like I didn't ever really dive into a bunch of the older stuff until more recently. So that's what makes me think that this was definitely a first watch through for me because even though 96 isn't as old as the rest of these franchises, obviously, I was I turned four in December of 96. So I know I wasn't <laughs> watching it then. Um, I'm I'm a little bit older than you, uh, but I actually did see it in its TV premiere. Uh, we talked about on the Child's Play episode that the Child's Play movies were like the first horror movies I ever saw. Yeah. And that was, I can't even put a date on that, but, you know, mid, mid-90s. mid mm-hmm. So maybe a, a few years later, um, Scream had its TV premiere on, uh, it was right before Scream 2 came out, which was only a year later. I'll have to look up the date sometime, but I specifically remember like it was like a big deal that this this, you know, big movie was playing on TV. And I I remember, you know, watching it. It was the just the next, you know, the second horror movie I ever saw after, well, fourth because I watched Three Shadows Play. But, you know, I, I wasn't going into it as a horror fan. It was just like, oh, I've heard of this movie because it was like, you know, the, the talk of the town for, you know, the year before. And, you know, it was advertised heavily. So I, I remember staying up late to watch it this it was 1997 so i was eight i if that math works out i think okay and i you know the the meta self-referential stuff went over my head the humor went over my head it was the you know the first real again well again other than child's play first like slasher movie that i'd seen first modern one um and it scared me it it affected me in in the way that you know I feel like people maybe 10 years older than than you or I might have felt watching, you know, Finding Fire 13th or Halloween at the video store kind of thing. And I'm I'm happy to say that, you know, watching it now, obviously I don't get scared anymore, right. but I still find it, you know, I, I love the original Halloween, but I don't find it particularly scary as an adult. It has great atmosphere, but but the, the horror elements, you know, are a little dated. But Scream, granted, now it's 15 years or whatever, almost 20 years later than after Halloween. Yeah. Um, but even now, we're now more than 20 years removed from it. I feel like it holds up really well in terms of in terms of the atmosphere, the tension, the scares, and, and even the mystery if you don't know it. The thing I've really loved about a lot of the horror genre is their reliance on practical effects makes these stand the test of time a little better, simply because even if you can tell that something is an effect, you're willing to overlook it because it's not like it's glaringly bad CGI or something. You know, I know with the recent It movies, that was a big criticism, more so of the second one, was how the CGI looked. And when you have 
that element added into things. And I forget if I was talking to you about this or one of my other friends who also loves horror, but I kind of want to see a big budget horror film that does something with practical effects in the way that Friday the 13th, Halloween, and Scream even did. Because I feel like having that higher budget and using it for practical effects could make some of the horror movies as of late so much better. Because I think if It Chapter 2 in particular had used more practical effects... I don't think it would have received quite as much criticism. Yeah, no, I I agree. I I do think there's been some examples. I think the most recent Halloween movie um, used, you know, predominantly practical. um, And the Evil Dead remake, I think, was a big one in terms of like, you know, the amount of blood that they used uh, that was practical. But there's just something about, like you said, these movies, it was it was before CGI was like, you know good enough to pass off at for what you for what it's being used as now like you could never do a full cgi character or like even cgi blood splatter at this point would have been would have looked terrible yeah Um, so working within those limitations makes both the effects artists i think a little more creative and the filmmakers more more conservative with, with what they show like we were talking about you know the the doggy door kill with tatum but it's it is a dummy you see get squished and it's probably like literally two seconds of footage, mm-hmm. you know, maybe 50 frames. And because of that, you know, it's, you know, almost like a sleight of hand trick. You you think you see a, a person getting squished and it's obviously, you know, it's a dummy. But if they had the technology that they have now, someone might have made that same kill and you'd see, you know, you could see it all from one angle because they could replace the body with the CGI person and then see it get crushed. And I don't think it would be as effective. Right. Yeah, There's just something about, about the tangibility of, you know, having an object on screen that, you know, has the correct lighting and everything. There's just some some things they can't quite recreate perfectly yet. I'm sure that day will come, but uh, until then, I would love to see more practical effects. Yeah, and you know the new Halloween from 2018 was made on a 10 to 15 million dollar budget, which is nothing today. Right, that is true. It's a Blumhouse, so it's you know low budget, high budget for a lot of slashers, but low budget for a Hollywood movie. But the thing is. Blumhouse makes that money go very far. I mean, the fact that they didn't have to pay Jamie Lee Curtis ten million by herself, you know. <laughs> yeah, they they're they're smart because they entice their talent with back end deals. So it's like she only got whatever it was X yeah. number of million up front, but then she owned part of the movie. So if it was a hit, she made a bunch of money, which she did, and that enticed her to come back for two more. Yeah, they're getting very clever with things like that. More so today, I would argue, than in the you know 70s and 80s when these things first started out, because that wasn't something they necessarily thought of when they started doing these kinds of movies. Obviously, by 2018, they knew exactly what they had in Michael Myers and specifically Jamie Lee Curtis. Right. And now I feel like every movie that comes out, you know, in a post-Marvel Cinematic Universe world, regardless of genre or budget kind of everyone is thinking, what can we do for a sequel well before the first one comes out? Yeah. And I think that's detrimental to a lot of movies. You know, sometimes you're watching a movie and it almost feels like a prequel to another movie that may or may not happen if that one's not a success. Like instead of instead of just focusing on the story to be told, they're setting up this world, they're building this world that might have payoff in another movie. Right. Now, I appreciate the world building, but if you're not going to use it, you know, within this movie, within the movie that we're, that is being made... 
I don't know. It just feels a little, a little hollow. And I, I don't think that was the mindset uh, for a lot of the movies that people hold in high regard. Right. And to bring it back to what goes on in this movie in particular, we haven't really spent too much time talking about Gale or Dewey, because I really feel like Gale is that stereotypical, antagonizing, nagging reporter who just wants the story. And obviously, we get the reveal that she is writing a book that is clearly about Sydney's mother's death. Yeah, I think she was uh, very well cast in that because, I mean, when we're looking at the timeline, like you said, I, I'm pretty sure she had just filmed the first season of Friends. And based on the, the rest of the cast, like they probably could have gotten away with casting Courtney Cox as a teenager. Mm-hmm. Um, she might be a few years older than the rest of the cast, but not much older. Um, probably not much older than Drew Barrymore, and she played a teen in the opening. Yeah. Uh, but they they kind of gave her, you know, almost aged her up and made her this reporter who's who's a few years older. Um, and I think that was a really smart choice. She really, really owns that role. I feel like, you know, she gets to use some of her comedic chops, but also she gets to be a badass a lot. And, like, that's fun. And she gets to play like this, you know, like you said, this naggy, you know, the over-the-top almost, but mm-hmm. in a good way, reporter. Yeah, that, that's fun casting. And she's wearing, you know, like bright yellow, red, these colors that really stand out in comparison to the setting and the other characters around her. And, you know, I think she actually is like seven years older than David Arquette. So it makes sense that they went the opposite direction and kind of aged her up a little. Yeah, yeah, that does make sense. Uh, but yes, she, she has a very bold wardrobe and you'll see she makes some bold hair choices in the sequels, which uh, we'll talk about after you watch those. Yeah, I'll I'll have to see how that goes. But obviously, with the new movie, too, that they announced and her coming back, Nev Campbell coming back, I am very excited to dive into the other three movies, which I should be able to get to before, you know, the fifth one comes out, whether or not they want it. Yeah, we got a year now, I think. It's January 2022, I think, is what they're aiming for. So Okay, I have lots of time. (laughs) Um, I will say, uh, just my quick rundown of the sequels without giving anything away, um, I think Scream 2 is really good. It's my favorite of the sequels, um, far and away. Considering they churned that out in like a year, the first one was a hit, and they wanted to, I'm pretty sure, release the second one the same weekend, one year later, basically. Okay. So it came together really fast, and I think because of that, there wasn't any time for studio meddling it was a dimension release who like infamous for kind of getting overly involved in in productions um usually to their detriment yeah so i think fast tracking it kind of made them just do like you know kind of go with their gut and do whatever feels right and and it's a good movie has some really really good set pieces in it um the third one uh it's it's hard because i I don't remember the exact story but kevin williamson who wrote the first two wrote a draft of the third one that i think you know had more high school killers and then um it was after columbine so they wanted to get away from that uh or maybe i forget it was after 9 11 some big tragedy happened where they wanted to go a different direction with the movie in any event um so they had to bring in another writer who reworked it entirely and in at the last minute and like it's it's okay it it has moments but it often feels like like a live action scooby-doo movie okay (laughs) which I'm not against yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, which, which I love, don't get me wrong, but it just doesn't feel right as a Scream movie. Um, like, too many too many cameos, too 
just a little over the top. Got it. Um, and the fourth one, they had like a few years to cool off and kind of make fun of the trend of all the remakes. And I wish they pushed it a little further because it starts out being that way where they're kind of making fun of how every other movie except Scream has been rebooted. But then it ends up just feeling like another another Scream movie without any any real... Like they hadn't grown much in the, the whatever it was, five years since the previous one. But it's still I think that one still has a lot of redeeming uh, qualities. I think it's a cool movie. Um, I, I'd probably like it a little better than three. But yeah, I'm excited to hear your your feelings and excited to see what they do with the fifth one. Yeah, and the fact that it spanned 15 years from the first one to the fourth one, too, is very interesting because, you know, Halloween, there were a lot of Halloweens kind of in a row there for a while. Same with, you know, Nightmare and Friday the 13th, it seems, and even the Chucky movies. But, you know, David Arquette in particular has just had a very very interesting career over, you know, these last few decades here because he might have been one of the more recognizable people in this when it came out because he was in 13 episodes of The Outsiders, 12 episodes of Parenthood, a couple episodes of Cruel Doubt. He had been on, you know, these very popular TV shows as, you know, a one-off guest character kind of thing and then, you know, that was all happening I want to say five or six years before Scream even came out. So the fact that he's someone who kind of always plays these quirky roles from what I can tell, because I recently watched Writing the Bullet for Chat Cemetery, and he's in that. And he is someone who is always very interesting to watch. And he's kind of a little more tame in this than I expected. Yeah, I feel like he kind of became uh, almost a parody of himself. In, in some of his post-Scream movies. Um, and I don't think that's that's his fault. That's just what he got casting. He became like this comedy guy because he does. I mean, he has, he he plays, he plays it for laughs. For He plays Dewey for laughs a lot of the time. But I mean, he's also, you know, it's part of the character. It's, it's not him. Um, and they, they originally killed him at the, in, in the movie. Uh, and test audiences liked him so much that they, they added a shot of him like putting his thumbs up at the end which allowed them to bring him back. And now he's, you know, he's been in all of them, including the new one. I also, as an aside, if you have any interest in David Arquette's career, there's a new documentary out called You Cannot Kill David Arquette. I saw that going around. It's, it just hit Hulu recently. Um, I loved it. It's, it's nothing to do with the screen movies. It's actually, um, I don't know how much you or listeners know about David Arquette or pro wrestling, but there was like a very, very brief stint where he made a movie about wrestling called Ready to Rumble, and they made him a WCW wrestler for like a month to promote the movie, and he won the title. And because of that, people like say it's like the one of the worst moments in wrestling history because he was just like this Hollywood guy who came in like 150 pounds and beat like these giant men and won this, you know, the most coveted prize in the industry. Mm-hmm. And I guess he's really harbored, you know, some bad feelings about that like because he's a wrestling fan like loved the industry loved the business that's why he wanted to make the movie so it's about him like in the last couple years like in his mid 40s or however old he is like trying to redeem himself as a professional wrestler and he kind of like very quickly goes through the the wrestling circuit uh you know wrestling in from like backyards to like small vfw halls to then like this like pretty big decent sized event and it's it's really good. It's really fascinating. He really like busts his ass to like prove himself. 
So I, I know that has nothing to do with Scream other than David Arquette, but he does wear uh, the Scream mask on his wrestling tights sometimes. <laughs> so so it ties in a little bit. Uh, but yeah, you cannot kill David Arquette. I highly recommend. Yeah, that sounds like it would be a good time. And I think his character was one that you did feel like he was going to die, not just because he was sort of this cop who wasn't really taken seriously as a cop, but because he's he's sent to follow Sydney around, who is hanging out with his sister now that her dad's gone, you know, she's staying with them. And you always get this feeling that at any moment, it's going to be him who runs into Ghostface. And obviously, you do have that encounter at the end of the movie. But like you said, they have him give the thumbs up on the way into the ambulance. And I had to go back and rewatch that to make sure it was him because my mom watched this with me and she thought it was Randy who was being put into the ambulance at first. And I was like, no, I think I saw the mustache. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's the other thing. You, you don't normally have this many survivors in a slasher movie. There's, there's what, four of them of of the main cast survive, which is almost unheard of. Um, and again, just another another way they subverted expectations. Right, because even though each of them suffers an injury, aside from Dewey's, I felt like none of them were really life-threatening injuries. Yeah, right. I mean, yeah, Dewey, by all accounts, should be dead. He does walk with a limp in the sequels because of, I think he gets, what, like shot in the back or stabbed in the back? I can't recall which, but... The knife was sticking out of his back, but it looked like it was very, very close to his spine. So I imagine that would bring about some issues with walking. And then, you know, Randy got shot in the shoulder. Sydney kind of got stabbed, not exactly in the shoulder, but it was like not in the heart either. It was kind of above a little. And then, you know, Gail just gets knocked out a couple times. Yeah, so again, I, I do like, again, that, that they they kind of take their beatings. You know, it's not, you know, sometimes the final girl never gets touched by the killer, basically. So it's, it's like, interesting to see that everyone gets beat up. If they're going to have that so many survivors, it's, they, you know, they don't make it easy on them. Yeah, and Gail's first knockout doesn't even come because of Ghostface. It's because Sydney was in the middle of the road and she swerved and went off the road, <laughs> you know? So yeah. I think it is always interesting when it's like, hey, there's not just one final girl, technically, and you also have two final guys. So they kind of even things out. And I think that is what has allowed them to sort of keep things going with the same characters all of these years in the same way that Halloween does that with Jamie Lee Curtis, even though I know she's not in all of the Halloween movies and doesn't need to be. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That, but that's, I will say it's, it's both a, pro, well, <laughs> I don't want to say anything to spoil the sequels for you, but let's just say it's not the only movie where everybody survives um, or where there are multiple survivors, right. which is good to a point. But also I feel like, especially with this new one, um, you have these characters who have already survived four incidents and it's getting a little, you know, hard to swallow, they'll continue to survive all of them. So I almost feel like to to kind of to up the game to keep you on your toes and raise the stakes. I almost feel like one of the main cast members has to die in this new one. I think so too. And obviously, like I said, I had seen the casting announcements. So I know 
who makes it to that one. <laughs> oh, right, right. Yeah, that's true. So, yeah, I am definitely looking forward to that. Is there anything else you want to talk about in regards to Scream? I know we kind of talked more broadly about what happened, but I think it's, like I said, pretty simple. So you don't need to go too terribly in depth with every single character. We, we talked about, you know, Randy being the video store guy, the one who knows all about horror movies. And I really felt like everyone just played their role really well to the point where it made this way better than I expected it to be. I wasn't quite sure how it was going to hold up, but because you don't really need a ton of practical effects even, it's not like, you know, heads are rolling in this. Right, yeah. No, I, I think my my two points about the movie that, that I wanted to bring up, one was the opening scene, which we talked about already, but I just, again, think it's brilliant, best opening scene in all of horror. Yeah. And the other thing is the party scene, which is basically the last act of the movie. It's it's all this this big party where they all come. Um, and that's where, you know, Randy gives his big speech about, you know, the, the three rules one must abide by to survive a horror movie. They watch Halloween on TV. It's just like such a, especially again, I was watching this when I was a kid. Like, it seemed like such a fun, like, oh, this is what kids do. Yeah. Other than until the killer comes in. <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I just always really loved those two scenes. Um, and I'm curious from your perspective now that you, I, I, we did this similar thing on the child's play. Um, but where do you rank scream when you're in terms of the original horror classics, where does scream rank among the other ones that you've seen? Honestly, it was really, really good. I gave this a four and a half out of five. So I think I would put it just below Halloween. So Halloween would still be my top one. And like you said, it's different. But I feel like John Carpenter just captured something that a lot of people after him tried to capture. And obviously, you have Black Christmas, which came before Halloween. And I don't know if we want to include that in this now that there have been three of those as well. But <laughs> I guess it counts as a franchise-ish. I mean, yeah, it's a, it's a classic either way. Right, exactly. And you can tell that a lot of things in the slasher genre, subgenre, if you will, started with that movie in particular. And, you know, there's probably some others that I haven't seen. But as far as the big ones, I would probably go Halloween, Scream, Nightmare. And then I feel like Child's Play and Friday the 13th are kind of neck and neck there for the fourth and fifth spots. And honestly, I think kind of feel bad but i didn't really enjoy texas chainsaw massacre you didn't do an episode about that one correct no i did not all right well maybe we'll have to talk about it sometime because i, I will say unlike i mean it's it loosely fits the definition of a slasher movie yeah but i mean it's not it's different it, yeah it's different it, it was pre-halloween so like the the, the so-called rules hadn't been established yet but it's also i think it's a brilliant movie it's a extremely well-made movie in in all assets especially when you consider the budgets and shooting conditions yeah but it's not a movie i throw on like to have a good time on a friday night like i would basically any of those other movies i think there there's something fun about like a predictable slasher movie but texas chainsaw it's like like an endurance test almost it kind of never lets up that whole last act is just like a lot of yelling and screaming and and you know running in the dark Mm mm-hmm so I understand where you're coming from. Again, I respect a lot of the film. I, I think it's it's great. I think it's a better made film than a lot of these other ones, but it's not one that I watch super often. Yeah, I think the other ones just hit me in a different way than Texas Chainsaw Massacre did. That one felt 
very slow to me. But like you said, we, we can probably do a whole episode on that one as well, because you and I clearly both love talking horror. And obviously, me being a lot newer to it, there's still a lot I don't know. I've obviously tried to hit all of these first of the franchises. I even watched, you know, like I mentioned earlier, the first Leprechaun movie, which I don't know if that's a franchise that I really care to watch all of. Uh, it should definitely be lower on your list. Yeah. Some of the sequels are fun, but uh, not... <laughs> I'm not in a rush. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, I mostly watched that one because I wanted to kind of see that juxtaposition of Jennifer Aniston being in a horror movie and Courtney Cox being in a horror movie and then <laughs> uh, both fun. being in Friends. <laughs> yeah. Is there a Lisa Kudrow horror movie we got to find? I don't know. There might be. Who knows? <laughs> I will say now that you've you've gotten Scream out, you you can dive into like the Scream ripoffs, which is like a whole subgenre of itself. Basically, you know, from Halloween was born the whole slasher boom that we got with Friday and Elm Street and then the countless imitators and Scream revived that. So, yeah, I mean, the major ones were like, I know what you did last summer and Urban Legend, which Urban Legend is my favorite of the the post scream uh but it also revived all the other franchises because we got um halloween h2o was like a direct response to scream's success okay um the let's see bride of chucky we got jason x they're all like if you watch them having watched scream you can definitely see that you know a studio exec watched Scream and was like, oh, we own this property. Give me a new movie. And also I want characters to make like self-referential jokes and stuff like that, which it's a little corny in a lot of them. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Um, Bride of Chucky becomes like a straight up comedy for a lot of it. Halloween H2O, uh, Kevin Williamson helped develop. So that, that one's a little more polished. Uh, but it's just interesting to see how far it's, it's, how far its influence went. Okay. Basically to have had an impact on the movies that influenced it in this weird roundabout, you know, snake eating its own tail way, just that it revived the genre that it was kind of poking fun at. It's it's such an interesting, interesting moment in horror history. Yeah, I think I have seen I Know What You Did Last Summer. Don't ask me to remember what happened in it. I have <laughs> a general idea of what happened in those movies, but I think that maybe came out around the time where by the time I hit like middle school and high school, those were kind of like the movies that were on a lot during Halloween time. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I know you did last summer was Kevin Williamson's next movie he wrote. I want to say he wrote it before Scream, but he didn't sell the script until after because Scream was this huge hit. But yeah, I, I, that one, it it's like, it's decent. Mm -hmm. It's not my favorite of them, but it, it's pretty fun. Then he, he also wrote The Faculty, which is not a slasher, but it's definitely... It's Kevin Williamson and very self-referential, like, fun horror. Um, again, another one with, like, a great cast. Uh, I, I think you would enjoy that one. Yeah, I will definitely watch whatever you want to recommend to me. So <laughs> it's just a matter of getting to it. <laughs> All right, your homework for the post-scream is The Faculty and Urban Legend. I think those are, like, my two favorite of, of that era that came after Scream. Writing them down now. <laughs> but Alex, thank you so much for joining me to talk about Scream. It's been really fun getting to go through a bunch of these and either text you or do episodes with you about them. And we'll definitely plan for a Texas Chainsaw one at some point. 
probably sooner rather than later. So I don't forget what happened because I watched that a couple months ago. So (laughs) already getting hazy. Yeah, yeah. I do have a bunch of Stephen King stuff coming up soon. So (laughs) I probably should, you know, get a couple more things in before I find myself drowning in under the dome. (laughs) Yeah, well, let me know. It's always a pleasure. All right, everyone, that does it for this episode of Welcome to Geekdom. If you want to support the podcast, you can do so through our Patreon. You can sign up for a dollar a month. That'll get you a thank you on the show. $2 a month, you get to pick a topic that myself and a guest will discuss on the show. For $5 a month, you can join the Welcome to Geekdom Slack group, where you can talk to myself and various guests who have been on the show. If you want to follow us on socials, you can do so at GeekdomPod on Twitter and at Welcome to Geekdom on Instagram and Facebook. And as always, thank you for listening and we hope you enjoy the rest of your day.